Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor and best-selling author of the book Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. And I am Jeremy Kaur, host of the New Books in Medicine podcast. American healthcare is broken. Across the United States, there are over 200,000 patient deaths from medical error every year, growing physician burnout outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed from simply the hype. Our goal is that everyone from healthcare consumers to political and medical leaders will find value in the discussions on our show. You may not agree with the different solutions offered, but you will never again conclude that nothing can be done. We hope you will join us. Please subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcast software. For more information, visit our website at www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Hello, this is Mikey McGovern, and you're listening to New Books in Medicine. I recently spoke with Rebecca Lemoff, Associate Professor of the History of Science at Harvard University, about her new book, Database of Dreams, The Lost Quest to Catalog Humanity, published by Yale University Press in 2015. Database of Dreams offers a beautifully written glimpse into the data practices of psychology and anthropology from the 1920s through the 1960s. She traces the history of projected tests, like the Rorschach and TAT, alongside dream analysis and life history, as these methods came to be applied in settings of cross-cultural research. It is also the history of a fascinating yet forgotten analog database technology, the microcard, through the life and work of Bert Kaplan, who trained at Harvard's Department of Social Relations and devoted his life to the collection of myriad kinds of human data, a catalog of human personality, in a sense. Lemov's book gives us necessary pause to scrutinize the present obsession with passively collecting more and more data about human subjects, often qua consumers. I speak here of the practices commonly understood as big data. In our discussion, we touched on this, along with other fascinating threads taken up by the book. 
I can strongly recommend this book for anyone interested in the history of psychology or anthropology, and also to readers more concerned with contemporary debates on whether and how human selves are being reconfigured in new ways through regimes of data collection. I hope you enjoyed this interview. Rebecca, welcome to New Books in Medicine. Thanks, Mikey. It's nice to be here. So, uh, as we've kind of discussed, the way we like to start our broadcast is by discussing kind of how you came uh, into the subject itself, uh, the field, and sort of what inspires this current book. Mm-hmm. This is a very good question because I actually uh, have been trying to reconstruct when I first heard about this peculiar collection of dreams and other subjective materials, which I came to write the book about, and I came to call the database of dreams, but I can't quite remember the first time I heard about it. It's as if I always knew about it. <laughs> and I think that's because it goes back to my uh, my dissertation research in which I became captivated by this kind of legendary uh, filing cabinet at Yale mm. and the, that had uh, been started in the 1930s and kind of reached its heyday right after World War II, in which they attempted to file all hu- human cultural materials mm. <laughs> or information about every possible uh, human activity, belief, even things like flora, fauna, culture, broken down into 553 major categories and a number of subcategories. And so uh, in doing research on this, these Yale files, which were called uh, Yale's Bank of Knowledge sometimes, or sometimes just the files, which attempted to be complete, I started to, I guess, run across footnotes that mentioned another filing system that dealt with dreams and seemed even more elusive or sort of more intriguing to me. And so, and also, um, it had never really taken off. So, mm-hmm. so that's why I kind of got interested in it. And I ended up, I guess, I guess those footnotes must have made an impression because then I, I, came, I circled back later on. Mm-hmm. And you have a background uh, in anthropology. So this project is kind of bringing uh, your empirical work kind of closer to your own training in a way. Yeah, it also feels like circling around in that sense, I guess, to, to uh, my, my training in anthropology. And also, I've always been interested in, even in my dissertation, in the not simply anthropology, but its allegiances with sociology and psychology and, and uh, even like other, other fields. And it's kind of uh, capacious, this capacious vision of anthropology. So in, in, the goal, in many uh, of the high points of you know, American anthropology, it actually envisioned itself as just one aspect of behavioral science. Mm. I seem to keep being drawn back to that interdisciplinary vision Mm -hmm. or cross-disciplinary vision of anthropology. So this, so this particular project that I end up writing the book about is a, is a, is a great example because there, there was almost no distinction between psychological, sociological, or anthropological information. Um, but I can get more specific about how that's how that's the case. Yeah, well, I kind of wanted to start it by talking about the the dreams part of the title and the sort of mm-hmm. the function that dreams as data serve for you, because there's this interesting problem framed in a few ways in the book about um, kind of the. The ethical nature, the legality of certain kinds of data, and also what different kinds of data mean for emerging disciplines. So you deal in the what could be characterized as psychology, amongst other things, with projective tests, mm-hmm. uh, like Tats and Rorschach plots. But dreams are kind of a very different 
sort of data, even in that sphere, right? You have projective tests are obviously very open-ended, but they become standardized in a certain way. So dreams kind of open on to different territory um, for, you know, uh, kind of estimating meanings of human lives. And then the other interesting thing is that as anthropological data, you kind of frame the problematic uh, of anthropologists essentially trying to extract the secrets and functional aspects of cultures and how this sort of secret extraction, while also related to espionage in a really mm-hmm. interesting and problematic way, um, dreams have kind of this more neutral content to them, and that allows them to kind of function and be exchanged in a more, re- in a more ready way. So I guess, yeah, I wanted to talk about dreams as a lens into this sort of research. Yeah, um, I was I was drawn to dreams, and uh, I think they they are, they symbolize this, you know, on two levels, both the dream of a certain ki- kind of data. Of a, of I mean, I found a set of historical actors who were very interested in pushing the limits of the kinds of data you could collect. So, not just uh, data about you know family budgets or, but actual could you actually collect the inter uh, people's nighttime dreams mm-hmm. and um, make them uh, survive in a sort of long uh, survive in some kind of format. So it was, but it was a technological challenge, but it was also a kind of aspiration. So the dream stands as kind of the limit of a certain kind of data. Yeah. Uh, but the um, but actually, I mean, you mentioned projective tests. One thing that's interesting is uh, some sociologists and psychologists and anthropologists who use the projective test thought of it as a way of producing a controlled dream. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) there's actually a lot of fluidity between, um, I mean, you would have different techniques that might produce uh, usable data, but they, they seem to, in the minds of the social scientists, have something in common. They all had a dreamlike quality, or that's the kind of evidence they were interested in. And it was almost, uh, a kind of interest in, um, yeah, the somehow capturing the procedural uh, contents of someone's experience, mm-hmm. not just their, not just their state of mind, but really what it was like to be another person as they as they sort of experience, like a stream of consciousness, mm-hmm. uh, like a GoPro, <laughs> a GoPro <laughs> projected backwards into the nineteen fifties. I think that was the ultimate goal, and a dream is appealing because it actually, in some sense, it, it it does have a coherent shape, and someone can recite it to you. And, mm-hmm. and there were certain, I guess, intellectual centers that fostered um, or pushed dream analysis as like a viable methodology. So, departing from kind of you know, the standard understanding of like you know Freudian dream analysis, I think that uh, you cite two uh, U Chicago anthropologists. Mm-hmm who were very big at pushing this agenda. So this kind of, uh, against even the sort of dust bowl empiricists that are described as also conducting some of these surveys. So is there like a, is there a particular theoretical lineage of this or? Well, I often think of it, uh, like the, the main dream collector in this project was Dorothy Egan, who is now quite forgotten. I think it's safe to say her husband was the head of, uh, the anthropology department, Fred Egan, Chicago, and there were actually a lot. A lot of the key players in this project had something to do with Chicago, mm-hmm. and also something to do with the Midwest. And then there were also links with Harvard. But the but the Chicago part, I think the tradition of psychoanalysis there did influence, um, did influence uh, Dorothy Egan and Fred Egan. But 
and Dorothy Egan underwent intensive psychoanalysis mm-hmm. throughout uh, her adult life, and I think she attributed to that. Um, I'd have to. I'm to her several analysts, like the insights that she gained in uh, trying in trying to apply uh, dream gathering techniques to primit- what she would call primitives or Hopi Indians. Mm-hmm. But um, she also is in many ways post Freudian, and her radical idea was that you could you didn't have to look for uh, deep. You didn't have to look for deep meaning in dreams. That often the meaning was quite near the surface, mm-hmm. particularly with what she called primitive dreams of of the Hopi. Hopi Indian. So she actually, in some ways, so her one of her pioneering articles was called um, "Manifest Content in mm. uh, Dream Collection." I think she was actually very well known for these articles in her day, and and uh, and she's an interesting figure I can talk more about. But anyway, I think in her orientation was both she was influenced by Freudian theories, but she was also a kind of a, a renegade in the sense that she said. There was no. Um, you could you could easily find the meaning of the dream by embedding it in the surround the cultural surroundings of the person. You didn't have to look for some kind of deep or tricky or you know uh, some kind of Freudian meaning. Right. There's no kind of you know signifier that one is seeking out in the dream. It's more about the kind of act of recollection and what that reveals about cultural experience. Seems yes. to be the difference. And also having dreams in large amounts mm-hmm. was important. So it's not so much, you know, Freud is notable for what he can do with one small dream. He, you know, can spin these amazing webs of interpretation just from Irma's injection. It was kind of mm-hmm. a nondescript dream. But Egan was interested in large amounts of dreams that you could plot in charts and you could you could um, extract different, you could, you could embed in a cultural analysis. You could also use for comparison and so she gathered more dreams probably than any single anthropologist from, um, although she wasn't formally trained as an anthropologist, but mm. she, she was a pioneer. And this whole idea of plotting and sort of showing like relations between vast amounts of data is something I think we should talk about later because I think that emerges as one of the problems of the uh, kind of push to make micro data and make that the kind of fungible uh, form of and legible form of kind of exchange and uh, taking these things down. But I also wanted to push on a little, uh, one of the other kind of psychological techniques you talk uh, about earlier in the book that I brought up, uh, projective testing. Mm-hmm. And what I found really interesting in your, I think it was the third chapter on uh, when you talk about kind of cross-cultural mm-hmm. uh, projective testing and the many, many different uh, kinds of resistance and cultural meanings that those are bound up in. And so I think that there is kind of a, you know, dominant sort of pop cultural association with the Rorschach tests and things like that. But I mean, I was wondering if you could sort of explode what maybe a few of those problems are um, that are encountered in the um, kind of generalization mm-hmm. of uh, projective testing. Well, yeah, I think um, it's quite interesting. In, in that chapter you're referring to, I look at this movement to take the dominant projective test. So projective Projective tests underwent huge popularity in the middle of the 20th century because they were seen as these the best uh, the best available techniques for X-raying. Is seen X-ray seen as of like the soul, X-rays yeah. of the soul or X-rays of the self, or somehow a way of accessing hidden dimensions of subjective experience. And 
it was also they were also val- valorized, um, particularly the Rorschach, but also the thematic app perception test. And in addition, there was a welter of forty or fifty other tests that were quite mm-hmm. popular, wow. ranging from like the pain app perception test, which asked people to look at pictures of people falling off ladders, and you had to describe what was happening. To you know, tests that were targeting children, tests that were targeting adults, tests that targeted um, you know different. Uh, geographical areas. So this was kind of the heyday of the projective test as a special instrument. And to it was attributed both, uh, I mean, it was actually described by Marguerite uh, Hertz, I believe, uh, as objectifying the subjective. So it was actually a tool that could take the subjective and render it in objective terms if you, if you used, if you were careful enough. And you were also kind of modest about, there was both a uh, grandiosity and modesty to the goals of the projective test. But in the original forms, uh, people like Rorschach and Henry Murray and uh, Christine, Christiana Morgan, who invented these top two tests, didn't envision it uh, necessarily going around the world, although Rorschach mm-hmm. actually was interested in testing Swiss people from different cantons. Mm-hmm. So he was interested in testing the Swiss who lived in the high mountains versus the Swiss who lived in the lowlands. And, fi- and they had these kind of stereotypical reputations that the mountain dwellers were, you know, brusque and not very talkative and the the lowlanders were friendly. So he wanted to see if the test would bear out those kind of cultural stereotypes and he found that they did. And he thought there could be it could be used racially to type type people as well. But in the nineteen thirties and forties, a new generation of quite serious um and even indeed legendary um anthropologists set out to actually take these, you know, pack up their the tests in their kit bags and take them upriver into the most remote areas of the world and try testing groups of people who had, in many cases, never met a white person or never encountered a two-dimensional image, much less a Rorschach test or a you know, psychological instrument or even the idea of the psyche, right. you could say. Um, so, so, and so um, transpired this rather odd undertaking that ultimately was a global global project of taking the test to the Saharan Desert and to the South Pacific Islands and to the very very remote or uh, tribal groups and sort of asking them to sit down wherever they were and uh, undertake an inkblot test and then trying to gather these in massive amounts. And what's interesting, so this did reveal, um, I mean, and it sort of dramatizes for me, and I found this one of the most engaging parts of doing the research was that it it sort of it highlights methodological conundra that would later come to haunt the Rorschach because it's you know it's no longer seen as pow- as powerful as it once was, but it shows like the the limitations of um, well of many of the claims of the test and also of the idea of the standardized setting because the Rorschach mm-hmm. was always meant to be given in a special closed room with a professional uh, you know, test giver who was and the, the two, uh, the test giver and the subject would be assumed to share the same language. But when people like Irving Hallowell took the Rorschach test um, to, 
to give to the Ojibwe um, upriver, he would he would end up giving you know administering the test in a in a range of very odd situations, such as uh, you know in a on the beach or in while while one of the subjects was doing the dishes or while the entire family was gathered around because people didn't necessarily like to be alone with an anthropologist if he was trying to talk to a woman. Actually, it was quite suspect. Right. Children were also. Um, not comfortable taking the test, so he often had to devise games, or he, he developed a technique with a orange wood stick where he would have them point at different parts of the... He had to actually improvise to even make the test um, viable, and so, in, in he, and to his credit, or it's quite interesting because he writes at length about the accommodations he had to make to what you might call the standardized setting, but to him, these accommodations, you had to use an interpreter... Uh, to him that it didn't invalidate the test. It just was something you had to be forthright about. So I think that issue is quite interesting. It's kind of about the way technologies move and the way standardization operates. You can see that, you know, different affordances were built in as, as the test migrated. And mm-hmm. so it became kind of a surprisingly the story about technology that I hadn't, I hadn't completely expected. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes even, um, I believe in Native American tribes, they sort of perceive these packed up sets of cards and things like that as this sort of symbol of um, kind of government control. And here come the white men again with their, um, you know, not like not like their census pads, but but you sort of know what I mean, because there was a big issue with like um, like harboring German spies, I right. think, at one of the sites. Right. <laughs> so you brought up this. There's all these interesting political entanglements um, that are wrapped up in this history. And yeah. And actually, what I so what I wanted to go to next was you know also to kind of pursue further this situation of information gathering and the kind of the uh, you know like the uh, the ethical. So um, one one of the things I found most interesting was, and I believe this was about taking life histories, but it may not have been. It may have been one of the other methods, but this idea of um, the idea of exchange and what makes um, you know what makes something uh, equitable or even mm-hmm. like beneficent, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, in establishing the grounds for uh, doing this kind of analysis. So at first it was these kind of ad hoc continual payments to even talk about any of these subjects or to bring up dreams or to bring up cultural secrets. But then it's sort of once the anthropologists become entrenched in these communities, it sort of becomes this revolving door phenomenon where they go to a bar and if somebody needs to uh, get another drink, right, <laughs> they need to, they, they basically just go to the resident anthropologist there and subject themselves to a test. <laughs> so that did happen. Yeah. Right. It, well, it was actually. <laughs> You could look at it one way as a kind of testament to the creativity and improvisational uh, abilities of the different anthropologists, one of whom did, uh, he had trouble getting people to submit to the Rorschach test or to other tests, and so especially in one particular community. So he set himself up at a local bar and would he would buy a drink in payment for to the person in payment for taking the test, so that could be seen as. There were other cases too in in other communities where like these George and Louise Spindler would give rides to people who were trying to hitchhike to the bar and along the way they would ask them questions or about their life histories and because or ask to meet other of their relatives so in some ways they were you know they were in inserting themselves in uh, the of course the local dynamics as anthropologists just always do and there's um, 
Yeah, I got interested in in just I think that that relationship and trying to move the relationship to the heart of this kind of encounter to the heart of what anthropology is, and it's always the part that's either put in a footnote or in some kind of appendix, mm-hmm. <laughs> or you know it's not always mentioned how much someone was paid or were they paid more, how much were they paid per dream or what did they think about that and what and for example the most uh, generous. Collector or donator of his dreams was a man, a Hopi man named Don Taliespa, who was paid um, per dream. Uh, he would fill out notebook upon notebook and send them to Chicago, where Dorothy Egan would then have them typed out by a typist. But he would use uh, the money. He became quite relatively wealthy in Hopi terms to buy. Uh, he he had had five of his children die, and he ultimately, and this was heartbreaking, of course, for. For his wife and himself, and ultimately, he and his wife adopted a son, and they would use the money to buy uh, Sears Roebuck like cowboy outfits mm-hmm. for their son to wear, and mm-hmm. have American-style birthday parties for him. Mm-hmm. And even while his collaboration or connection with the anthropologist made him persona non grata among the Hopi, and he was accused of all the betrayals of generations of Hopi working with anthropologists, he became sort of the symbol of all of that and was mm-hmm. uh, despised. Mm-hmm. I think he's a controversial figure even to this day. Mm-hmm. So I think um, I thought the book could focus on that situation and bring out the range of. Um, it's almost like a play. You could see, you could look at the the records and the archives and a lot of the data, which is as a kind of record of this encounter. And you could read between the lines or against the grain and find all sorts of interesting things. For example, when some Zuni, uh, there were Harvard anthropologists who were interviewing Zuni veterans, and they would be asking them to fill out sentence completion tests. And some of them would, instead of answering the question, for one of which was, when I see a white woman, I think blank. Mm -hmm. And they would, after a time, you know, one of them said, why, how does this help the Hopi? You know, how does this help the Zunis? (laughs) I mean, they would insert a kind of, powerful commentary on the instrument itself and sort of step outside of the context in which they were embedded. This ha- this fascinated me and ha- it happened many times. Right, because it's this, it's this moment of misunderstanding about what is, you know, professed objectivity and neutrality, right? So the idea is obviously you're gaining something material from doing this research, right? When the anthropologists are trying to assert that they are this kind of neutral middleman between, you know, experience of, you know, indigenous peoples and then, you know, this emergent like human science, right? Mm-hmm. So, and, and that, that, that misunderstanding was, I think, yeah, one of the most profound things. Because you wonder at times, I mean, these projects are, the kind of goals of them are not really, you know, well stated. They don't seem to be for any particular practical end. And that's sort of one of the things you discuss with this drive to catalog more mm-hmm. and more and just the idea of mapping. So, and maybe that's, maybe that's a good point of departure even into kind of the main project that you discuss, um, the work of Fred Kaplan, who was trained at Harvard. Harvard. And so his... Uh, Burt Kaplan. Oh, Burt Kaplan. Yeah. Excuse me. Yeah. Burt Kaplan, who was trained at Harvard. Um, and so his quest essentially was to um, record dreams and other bits of cultural information on these uh, microcards, which mm-hmm. are sort of this much, like, uh, much forgotten medium. Mm-hmm. And sort of this whole project was very much technological, but it was also the, the idea of it was to make 
available and keep useful all of the data from these other kinds of studies. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if you could just give us an overview of uh, his work. Sure, yeah. So Bert Kaplan was trained as a psychologist at the Department of Social Relations at Harvard, and he was a student of Clyde Clacon and and the other, uh, you know, psychologists and anthropologists here at Harvard. Um, He, but... Let's see, he got interested in projective tests, and he did his dissertation comparing uh, the projective test results among four different Native American tribes, and he worked with people who were already collecting that data, and he also collected his own. And so in that way, um, and he did this uh, research that was, it was kind of like, it was extremely well-received because he was uh, arguing against the grain of culture and personality studies, which had commonly assumed that people's personalities almost always mi- mimicked or were determined by their cultural uh, by their cultural surroundings, and he showed that that wasn't it wasn't a determinative re- you know relationship, and so it was actually quite quite progressive um, that you know people might not always you know it was kind of arguing against cultural stereotypes, and he. He was an influential kind of member of the second generation of culture and personality, which was much more subtle. But what he he also noticed and was friends with many people who were doing similar collections of dreams and what what they what they called subjective materials. And so, in a way, he became he volunteered to become the custodian and he uh, of all this data. And so, this was a side project, really. To what you know, initially it was a side project where he just he cared and others didn't care, and he noticed that other people. Once they had finished their interpretation and published from their hard, you know, hard-won data sets, they would throw them in a corner of the office and forget about them. And perhaps when they retired, or they'd be thrown thrown away. There was no one there to curate or take care of these um, these these data sets, which in many cases had been collected over years at great. Uh, effort. So he, th- so it was basically his idea to build a clearinghouse and to build a permanent structure, but uh, in which all this data could be condensed, stored, and made available uh, at uh, ideally, you know, uh, at your fingertips to future and current researchers. So he had a vision that was both um, about targeting a certain kind of content that hadn't really been fully. Um, preserved or taken care of, which was subjective materials, and also experimenting with format or technolo- the technology technology of uh, data storage. Mm-hmm. So Kaplan, I call a data, uh, maybe a pioneer of data. And mm-hmm. he's really, I mean, he's not much remembered, I don't think. But uh, others who have read the book have commented on how it's astounding because he's this kind of figure who was, he was friends with so many powerful... He was there at the center of this very powerful movement of social science and behavioral science uh, during its heyday, and yet he has kind of disappeared from view. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of reviving his effort as well, which in a sense was quite, um, I don't know, ecumenical. It wasn't about building his own reputation. In fact, one of the reasons the Database of Dreams failed to thrive, you could argue, is that Kaplan lacked a sufficient self-promotional impulse mm. and he was you know he worked assiduously at it but it um you know a number of factors intervened 
Right, right, or even a you know primary argument for like the validity and use of that because I mean obviously like a gratuitous example maybe, but it just makes me think of the push to um, sequence the entire human genome, right? Mm-hmm. And this sort of evangelical like fervor mm-hmm. possessed by James Watson, saying mm-hmm. we need we need all of it, even right. if it doesn't turn out to be useful, because we have to even if you know we already know in advance that ninety eight percent of it or so isn't useful. We need to, we don't know where the 2% is, right? So it's this, you know, it's this argument that's constructed on the basis of applications to human health. But projects like this seem to be, yeah, very much at the interstices of um, social science research, which is figuring out its many multiple uh, disciplinary identities. Yeah. I mean, that's a good, that's a good uh, point of contrast and also resonance because, Kaplan did uh, partake in what I call the fantasy of total information, that it was necessary to have all the information before you knew what you wanted to do with it. And maybe future generations, I mean, undoubtedly future generations would would be able to do other things with it or perhaps reanalysis. So he really did think it was worthwhile and uh, the larger vision. So he gathered around himself many of the most eminent figures who were quite interested in issues around data collection, including people ultimately from the world of microcards and micro micropublication, uh, which is an analog technique, uh, which was really the premier technique of the time. But he also gathered around himself people like Clyde Cluckone and uh, or AI Hall- Hallowell, Pete Hallowell from Pen- Pennsylvania uh, and, and uh, Roger Barker, sort of pioneers in empirical and creative uh, data collection across the different social sciences. And he thought they would do a pioneering, a, a sort of pilot project, which was what I call the data. Actually, Database of Dreams applies both to that pilot project, which was the the sort of uh, the, the use of uh, testing of native populations, basically, or non-literate. They call them non-literate. But also they had in mind a larger a larger database, which would contain all sociological knowledge, and they imagined it would contain the records of brainwashed POWs, and it would contain the notes from primate stations, and it would contain mm-hmm. the life histories of junkies, and it would contain all the dreams of Harvard undergraduates. It was almost like a modernist poem, actually. Mm-hmm. Think of it. But anyway, they didn't think of it that way. But they <laughs> they did think that ultimately, if they got some a sort of procedure in place, they could scoop up all all the existing un- uncared-for data in the social sciences. And, in fact, Kaplan was sent by the National Science Foundation and the National Research Council to survey all, all socio- social science data in the U.S. Um, for a couple of years mm-hmm. and just see what there was among major figures. Mm-hmm. So that's a really interesting record. Mm-hmm. Actually, I wanted to explore a bit more this push toward microphotography and micropublication. Oh, yeah. And I, I guess I have like two questions. One, you know, what is it really, what is it about and where does it fall short? Because <laughs> it seems, it, it, it's fascinating to think at a, you know, a pre, I mean, it's very pre-digital, it's very analog. It's a, right, right. right. Um, you know, this sort of fantasy of more and more efficient storage, but then of course the problems of access. And then also I'm interested in, you know, from your actual uh, research, are you able to really engage with these uh, these materials, the microcards? Like, are there any readers that are still accessible? 
Well, there actually is one right there, which you can't see if you're listening, but (laughs) my husband happened to find it walking down Divinity Avenue uh, on campus uh, here at Harvard uh, on a trash heap. So that's kind of an index. It's it's one of the original Redux machines, and many people uh, mistake the microcard for microfiche, which succeeded it. Microcard was the... uh, was the great hope for standardization of, of micropublishing uh, in the 40s and 50s. And so, uh, and many people have terrible memories of the microfiche and the microfiche reader. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it, I've never seen anyone fondly remember them. But the microcard was actually a very pleasing, uh, opaque, uh, standardized, you know, set of cards on which you could, you could shrink um, pages of, da- of data or whatever materials you had so that each eight and a half by 11 inch page was about the size of a fingernail. But actually the capacity existed to shrink, you know, something like the entire Encyclopedia Britannica onto a pinpoint. I mean, they were actually, the difficulty was, was finding machines capable of bringing it back up, magnifying it sufficiently for use. So actually use became a limiting factor with these cards. And there's also a portable reader, which was said to uh, be, a, you know, you could carry it to the lab or you could take it out on the road or read. So you could ultimately read these cards while walking down the hallway was kind of the fantasy. But in fact, the portable reader didn't deliver very high quality images. But just to the fact that it was, um, they said it was a little larger than a king size packet of cigarettes. You know, that this was kind of the high-tech vision of what these technologies could do. And um, people recognize, um, like, Vannevar Bush, the um, envisioner of Memex, mm-hmm. was also experimented widely with microphotography, which he thought was the leading hope starting in the 30s for uh, storage, data storage. And so he tried to, you know, one of the limiting factors was searchability. So he tried to develop ways to search these uh, microcards like the rapid selector, mm-hmm. but then none of them quite worked. So actually, um, although Kaplan and his team ended up uh, selecting the microcard uh, as their vehicle, um, it was itself not. It, it 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 was it was doomed in several ways, and so this is kind of a story of a failure uh, of an interesting failure, I think, and the kind of confluence of several of several factors. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of which was, of course, the dawn of the digital age. <laughs> but, right, but right. But it would be actually several decades before digital uh, dual storage processing could even do, and, and and databases were capable of storing the data in the way that Kaplan's team would have wanted. So actually, it wasn't that it was just around the corner. It was, mm-hmm. it was quite a ways away. Mm-hmm. I think this offers a good, good point of departure to talk about how this work uh, sort of intervenes in discussions about big data, right? Mm-hmm. So there are many, you know, there are many ways, I guess, to characterize this. Um, sort of as you just brought up, like the the transition to the digital um, allows more like searchability. There's a lot more flattening, mm-hmm. uh, one might say. And then the other, uh, you know, the other key difference, I guess, as I would see it, or sorry, rather, the key resonance I would see mm-hmm. with this project is 
um, the idea of kind of um, latent and not active, passive mm. data accumulation and collection, mm. right? So outside of these sort of framed psychological experiments, the sort of, you know, collection of life information, and you also frame this well in the chapter on life histories, these uh, things that would not normally be deemed valuable uh. as such or made, uh, or made kind of fungible in regimes of value generation in science, right. all of a sudden you can do something with them. Right. And so that's, that's one of the interesting things here is that they're trying to document and preserve uh, these social science research studies into perpetuity um, and then sort of in uh, inaugurating that drive to just collect sort of basic life histories and accumulate more and more information, it's less about framing it in a particular kind of um, like argumentative or experimental um, paradigm, but, you know, actually just collecting what's there. Right. I think that's well put. And um, that's ex- I, what I became interested in. I mean, in some, in many ways, you could call, I try to call this a prehistory of big data, but it's, it's obviously not very big <laughs> in terms <laughs> of big data. And it's also, you know, very different from the unstructured quality of big data. Uh, and, and you could draw many points of uh that in which it doesn't really match up, but I, I think it does, this project uh, draws attention to some neglected aspects of big data that are extremely important and arguably at the core of what we're seeing that's quite new, which is that, you know, big data really is unique for vacuuming up the most intimate and seemingly banal parts of our lives, like click streams and uh, just in an intensive way, the experiential data of, for example, driving your car, uh, you know, gets hoovered up and uh, can be, for purposes as yet unknown, or perhaps, um, you know, can later be used retrospectively or in all sorts of ways. But it's really, the point is to have the data and seek hypotheses later. And in that, and maybe in those two senses, both the quality of the data and it's the idea of collecting before you quite know what you, for future, you know, for a projected future is what you see very strongly in this project. And I think it's quite useful for, as a reminder that not everything arrives with the digital. Like we'd like to think that that was the, you know, that was the uh, determinative transition. And, and I think it, I think it leads to a kind of technological determinism or digital determinism maybe, mm-hmm. but you know, a lot of these features were already in place. I, uh, several of them I name in the book, like the fantasy of total information, the pathos of the perishable format, and also just this desire to, capture the ever more secret and sometimes even the ever more just the everyday in a in a sort of uh, fungible form Mm -hmm. uh, was very strongly felt so why was it interesting to know uh you know how many cigarettes uh some you know uh an ifalukan islander smoked and why was it why (laughs) did you want to know his highly you know it's, it's not even a terribly interesting dream that he had in 1947 when, you know, when somebody asked him that question. But so these, all these things were kind of gathered up, uh, and made, and made available and their, their attempt was to preserve them. Mm-hmm. What was the other part I was going to talk about? There was the, there was the, there's the personal part and also, yeah, the gathering without, um, without knowing. And that's kind of a, you know, that's really, what proponents of big data argue is, um, you know, that it that it makes possible this this fourth paradigm to borrow from Jim Gray that 
you know, uh, even a friend of mine who did his research, Hallam Stevens, was telling this anecdote the other day about the people at the Broad Institute he had worked with and this real faith that um, the data can speak for itself if you have enough. And if you're not getting it to speak for itself, that means you don't have enough yet. Mm. And so it's just in in terms of, uh, you know, that's there's some kind of shift that makes possible the discarding both of experimental paradigms and even of hypotheses. And so this potentially the scientific methods being rewritten, all these claims are made. And you can see a little bit, I don't think Kaplan at all would have gone that far, but he was interested in, and and many of his um, friends were interested in just uh, the significance of data lay in its, in its accumulation. Mm-hmm. And, um, Mm-hmm. And then what about this vision? And this is kind of, this is, I think, the hard question, I think, for even for current proponents of big data. What's the vision of what one can show with that? We were talking before about the ability to plot different dreams along certain axes. And then mm-hmm. with certain, uh, you know, I feel like a lot of the dominant forms of, like, of like sort of big data presentation are, like, clustering in network right. analyses and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so I'm also, begin- I'm wondering... How do these imaginaries of sort of proof and things that are worthy to investigate begin to change with this? Because with social scientific data, it's even harder to think about that because a lot of it is bound up in hermeneutics and textual interpretation <laughs> rather than things that are like, you know, easily like graphical. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think there's a kind of fantasy of uh, stepping back social, <laughs> social, sci- for, social, social scientific uh findings from being embedded in hermeneutics and inter because mm-hmm. because those can be so tricky and so uh data offers pattern you know through pattern recognition a kind of a, a seemingly seamless uh approach um but what was i gonna there was some i forgot what i was gonna say hmm. there was some interesting thing we were just talking about um Sort of the proof, the what it what is created from data. Oh right, to I was thinking. Yeah, I had interviewed um, this entrepreneur. Is a data entrepreneur or a dream dream collector? Current day named mm-hmm. Hunter Lee Soik, who is uh, who moves around the world. Not uh, he doesn't necessarily live anywhere, although I guess he's currently in Dubai, um, and he's building an app called um, To Collect Dreams, which is. The name of it, but anyway, he says it's going. It's basically he wants to install this on everyone's phone, and on in one sense, it's a glorified um, alarm clock. It wakes you up slowly in such a way that you could remember your dream, and it offer uh, also affords you the chance to record or type your dream and then upload it into a massive. It's called Shadow, hmm. and their motto is "Remember Your Dream." Because their idea is that so much data is lost every night when we wake up and carelessly discard, or fail to remember, or fail to record, or fail to share our dreams. Mm-hmm. So he's offering this kind of method by which this will become automatic, and he wants to know whether teenagers in São Paulo dream the same dream as Nigerians uh, in a certain, you know, area. And he wants to be able to plot like when do certain themes arise, and how do how do dreams. Uh, patterns can you locate patterns of uh, content or preoccupations or emotions across the globe mm-hmm. so in many ways he embodies this kind of uh, big data hope um, just that first you need to put the mechanism in place for 
gathering all this up and also encourage a sharing a kind of ideology of sharing and also mm. of course of forsaking one's privacy and this does relate to anthropologists kind of being constantly interested in whatever secret remains unsaid right. is you know irresistible to kind of penetrate and constantly penetrate so i think uh, there's some interesting parallel there but so it was inter- and it was interesting to talk to him about this project as well which he says is still it's still in beta phase but he in he thinks it's going to be very big mm-hmm. um yeah and so that also you know it also kind of embodies yeah this future-mindedness i guess you could say mm-hmm. the sense that you don't yet know but it's kind of urgent to um yeah to also not to let anything go to waste and mm-hmm. so there's a concern for all that all that's neglected so can you make an entire databases of the otherwise or previously neglected or i was very interested in that theme which is kind of why i call the, i think of the book as thrift store history <laughs> is that it's kind of it's both about people who are interested in neglected data and wanted to care for it but also the project itself became uh itself a, you know ephemeral uh it was difficult to find. Often, when I when I went to the Library of Congress, where there was supposed a full set of microcards, the librarian there said no one had ever asked for it before, and they and then the you know the clerk couldn't actually find it after much rummaging, but he finally dredged it up. But it mm-hmm. and then at other places, it's either disappeared or the machine was just thrown away or was unable to to uh, read it. And um, can I tell a little anecdote about? <laughs> about the dreams. Yes, that sounds great. Yeah, I, so I I went to a talk when I first uh, got to Harvard as a postdoc, and there was a emeritus professor uh, giving a talk about the relationship between psychiatry and anthropology. And after his talk, I told him about my research, and he said, uh, he said, oh, I have your dreams in a box, and I've been saving them all these years. I'd be happy to give them. Beatrice Whiting gave me her copy of, I think it was Dorothy Eggins' dreams, and he said. Uh, yeah, just, you know, I'll, I'll donate them to you. And then he went home to try to find them, and he wrote me, a, sadly, in an email to say that they had been apparently thrown away. And that uh, this, you know, this highlighted to me the kind of what I think of as, like, the pathos of format. It's mm-hmm. that you think that the dreams are going to be the fragile part, but it's actually the data itself and the storage format that proved to be uh, unstable, Unreliable, and I found this over and over again. I think that again, another is another parable for our time because who hasn't lost their entire, you know, photo mm-hmm. uh, archive by just the yeah. press of a button, or the idea that the cloud somehow provides ultimate stability? When so, anyway, I was giving then la- uh, another chapter unfolded when I gave a talk to some uh, deans and provosts uh, the other week, and I was mentioning this the fate of. Bob's uh, of this collection of dreams and someone in the audience said oh I know Bob and she she said we ran she ran uh, she ran across that very box a few years ago and it was labeled uh, in a in an obscure library and she said her it was labeled Bob's box of dreams do not discard and she said they may still have survived and so she sent several people uh, looking for them, mm-hmm. and it turns out they actually had been thrown away. So this huh. was another way in which the story it keeps having these kind of uh, coming, it sort of these materials come into being and then seem to uh, disperse 
their their own uh, status, mm-hmm. ontological or <laughs> at whatever level, is uh, it constantly changing. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a very poetic and tragic thing too, right? <laughs> Bob's box of dreams do not discard. <laughs> you know, just thinking about the like potential valence of like even when even when you were just saying, Oh, I have your dreams. It's just there's so much like personal meaning and subjective um, qualities bound up in all of this that it's it is really tragic, right? Do you think about losing um, like say the results of a bunch of like gel electrophoreses and you know, who cares about things you run through a gel, but things that are both like data and also like have value in the kinds of, you know, thrift store and heirloom uh, sorts of ways that people do hoard and keep things. It makes it like all the more tragic. It does. It reminds me too of this, I guess the emotion that I I was trying to capture in the book through telling these stories and through looking through just kind of recovering this in a way, resurrecting this dispersed and uh, despised (laughs) or not despised, but really, this project that didn't come to the fruition they hoped for. Yeah. Um, but I was, it, yeah, captured in this little anecdote Joan Didion tells about keeping all of their, her daughter when she was a toddler used to say clever or funny things when she was misusing language and she and her husband would write these down, put each on a piece of paper and then put them in a little box that was put on her husband's desk and she could remember exactly where that was. But at some point the box had been thrown away. And now her husband was dead and her daughter had died too. And and the box was gone. And it was like this sort of embodiment of all of that um, passing. And, you know, you could say in the, in the digital era, we all deal daily with that kind of ephemerality mm-hmm. and needing to choose what to keep. <laughs> mm. Yeah. So speaking about projects and you know, things wrapping up and opening up again. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things we also like to do uh, when we're wrapping up these uh, podcasts mm-hmm. is to talk about your new work, mm-hmm. uh, which you presented on a little bit more today, but I was wondering if you could kind of uh, describe uh, for listeners what uh, your next pursuit is. Ah, yes. Well, I'm kind of in a way circling back to an earlier interest, but it's um, a history. It's called The Long Shadow of Brainwashing, a history of... Uh, course of interrogation and so and it's another cold war project uh this one with i guess uh significantly darker darker valence but it's really about um the context in which uh coercive interrogation techniques were codified and the behavioral science research that led to that so in in order to do that i need to evoke the kind of great crisis of brainwashing that arose around the korean war with which is most people are probably most familiar with uh, the Manchurian candidate for kind of describing that the fear that American soldiers were susceptible to programming mm. and basically that subjectivity itself was uh, destabilized. And, mm. and particularly there was a fear that Americans were, were the worst, that they had some kind of um, weakness. And so there are a whole program in both training soldiers to resist um torture basically in a systematic way or, or inoculate is the model or metaphor used was to inoculate them in, against torture but in order to do that you had to actually torture them so they set up camps called survival training camps and in, in which to do that and what's interesting to me is that the techniques that came out of all that research were standardized by the 1960s uh, in Kubark manual and other places 
uh, and that those main, were maintained almost in perfect uh, order until the War on Terror when they were revived and the SEER, the survival training specialists, were themselves brought in to teach you know, this course of interrogation of resistant sources. And the whole um, project was renamed Enhanced Interrogation. What interests me also is the way the subject is, is uh, or the soldier is seen is quite different, although the techniques are constant. It's no longer seen as a matter of brainwashing, but actually a matter of pure information extraction. Mm-hmm. So that's the story I'm trying to tell. <laughs> oh, that sounds fascinating. We hope to hear more about that in the uh, in the next couple of years. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for uh, speaking with us today. And uh, thank you all out there for listening. This has been New Books in Medicine. Thanks. Bye.